Part 2 Golden Days Warrior Spirit The Luang Po Cha that left such an indelible impression on those who met him during his trips to the West in the mid-1970s is, for many, the Luang Po Cha. Most of the surviving recorded talks, the well-known photographs and the priceless seconds of footage in the BBC documentaries were all from that period of his life. It is a wise, chuckling grandfather figure with a potbelly and walking stick that has embedded itself in the Western Buddhist pantheon. People who met him at that time recall a warmth and wisdom emanating from him that seemed timeless, so much so that it was hard for anyone to imagine that he could ever have been any other way. But of course, he had. Looking back twenty years, a somewhat different Luang Por Cha emerges. At that time in his life, although he appears a powerful and impressive figure, he is also perhaps a less engaging one. If in his later years he might have been compared to an absolute monarch at ease in a peaceful kingdom, then in the 1950s the comparison that would have come to mind was that of the warrior king of a troubled land. In the memories of those who lived with him in the early days of Wat Bapong, Luang Po was a spare, stern, vigorous figure. The few photos of him from this period convey an intimidating intensity. The images speak of a honed and disciplined mind, focused unwaveringly on its goal. It was a period in which he felt the culmination of his practice to lie within his grasp. Seeing the kind of momentum and intensity of effort needed to break through the last wall of ignorance, he was in no mood for compromise. He pushed his disciples to their limits. Those who could endure it stayed. Those who could not, left. He would say to them that if they genuinely aimed for liberation, they should know that Nibbana lay on the shores of death. The intensity of the schedule that Luang Po maintained at Wat Bapong during the first period of its existence was the natural outcome of the prodigious efforts he was putting forth in his own practice. As he led a small, tightly knit community, with few of the teenage novices and elderly men that were to swell and somewhat dilute the intensity of the Sangha in later days, he did his best to carry his disciples along in his wake. Patient endurance, praised by the Buddha as the most excellent incinerator of defilements, was the virtue that featured most prominently in Luang Por's exhortations to the Sangha. It was also the most striking feature of his own practice. The respect and awe in which the young monks held their teacher was inspired not only by the peace, wisdom and compassion that they recognized in him, but perhaps, above all, by the fact that he seemed so much tougher than everyone else. Over the centuries, it has become common throughout the world, for men at least, to look on spiritual endeavor as akin to warfare. In theistic traditions, the enemy that must be overcome is conceived of as an evil being. In Buddhism, it's the mental defilements. 
the idea of the spiritual warrior is one that has always appealed to young men, and in the early years of Wat Ba Pong, it was the dominant metaphor. Luang Po, at this early stage of his teaching career, had much of the battlefield general about him. He appears as a rugged figure, always leading from the front, hard but fair to his disciples, and a master tactician. He portrayed spiritual life to his disciples as a long campaign requiring endurance, guile, and supreme self-discipline. He urged them to grit their teeth and stick to their guns, because the rewards of victory were great. His Dhamma talks often featured forceful martial and boxing imagery. The monks were urged to fight the good fight and kill greed, hatred and delusion, or at least to get up in the ring and beat them to pulp. It was good stirring stuff and expertly pitched to the needs of his young audience. The members of the Sangha at Wat Pong had all grown up in the midst of a hierarchical and authoritarian society. They felt comfortable about deferring to elders. They responded well to clarity and bluntness. To a 21st century eye, Luang Po's style of leadership at this time of his life can seem harsh and autocratic. But seen in the context of the times and the prevailing culture, it was by no means unusual. He was a strict disciplinarian, scolding the monks for their failings with a spontaneous, startling ferocity. But nobody questioned that he had the right to speak to them in such a way. Indeed, for most young monks, having a teacher who struck fear into their hearts was inspiring. It was how it should be, how it was meant to be. The training at Wat Ba Pong was characterized by a very precise attention to the extensive list of observances and regulations that augmented the main body of the Vinaya. Another military analogy may best describe the rationale for this approach. In the monastery, where life is understood as a state of emergency, care over the smallest details can make the same difference between life and death as it can in wartime. Sharpness and clarity of mind were to be enhanced by grounding awareness in the concrete realities of the monk's daily life. Today, that early period has attained the status of the good old days, a golden age from which subsequent generations have fallen. Monks who later confessed how afraid they felt of Lumpur then did so with a pride that they were there and a nostalgic smile. Initially, Luang Po led the monks in the ruthless, head-on style that worked so well for himself. As he got older, his style mellowed. Whether the later period is viewed as an evolution or a decline, as will be seen there were monks who held both views, there is no doubt that throughout his life, Luang Po would look back to the early days of the monastery as a time when the cohesion, dedication and faith of the Sangha were at a level never to be surpassed. In those days, Ajahn Jan and Ajahn Tiang still didn't understand the practice, but they endured. They did as they were told, 
obedient to their teacher's instructions. Whatever I taught them or told them to do, they accepted it without argument, willing to listen to my words and reflect on them. That's why one of them was here for six years and the other for seven. During that period, Ajahn Chan and Ajahn Tiang never left the monastery, never went off tripping around the countryside aimlessly, wasting their time on things of little value. They sought the Dhamma from their teacher and practiced all the things that led to progress. That gave them great energy, both physical and mental. I led them in the practice, taught them to act courageously, to fear nothing at all, and they followed me. One day at a time. Ajahn Jan has spoken in detail of the daily life in Wat Bapong in those days. The bell would be rung at three o'clock for the morning chanting and meditation session. Long Po would usually be in the Dhamma Hall first. We would all arrive at about the same time, and sometimes there would be a check to see if everyone was there. If anyone was slacking in their practice and not coming out, he would ask where they were. You had fifteen minutes to get to the Dhamma Hall from the time the bell was rung, and if you didn't make it, something would be said. There would be a period of sitting meditation first, followed by chanting. Sometimes during the sittings, Lung Po would give basic instructions on how to overcome the hindrances. We all tried hard and he kept an eye on everyone. If anyone was nodding, he would call out to wake them up. At the end of the session, Lung Po would remind us once more about our conduct and urge us to be constantly aware. When he spoke, everyone was completely silent. We respected him. We were in awe of him. Nobody dared to fidget or speak. If anyone had to speak while they prepared their bowl and robes for alms round, they whispered. The longer routes would leave first. Lung Po himself went on a short route. He never went to Bangkok. He said the virus was still inside him. He meant that he still felt a trace of attachment to his old village and the people in it. If he went every day and saw the old place where he used to live, his brothers and sisters, his nephews and nieces, it might bring up old attachments. So, unless it was unavoidable, he wouldn't ever go to Bangkok. He'd go an arms round to Bangklang. During the time before the arms round. After the monks on the long routes had left, he would pick up a broom and do some sweeping, or some days remove the leaves from the shallow ditches along the side of the paths. At three o'clock in the afternoon, the bell would ring again. Before leaving your kuti, you'd close the door and windows, and take in your robes or any cloth that was out on the line, so that if it rained, you wouldn't have to run back. Then you'd bow. You always bowed. If you suddenly realized halfway down the path that you'd forgotten to bow, then you had to go back. You'd be carrying a broom and a water kettle in your hands, with your bathing cloth folded and tucked under your arm or on your head. 
when you got to the Dhamma Hall, you'd put your things down and go and bow to the statue of the Buddha inside. You'd put your kettle on the monk's seat and then go out. If the sun was strong, you'd put the folded bathing cloth neatly on your head and then help sweep leaves. Lung Po would be there and we would sweep in a big line across the cleared area of the forest. There was no conversation. If it wasn't absolutely necessary, nobody spoke. All that you could hear would be the sound of the brooms. In those days there was rarely anything sweet to drink in the afternoons. All we'd get would be a bitter infusion made from Boropet vine, some more, and Indian gooseberry makam bomb. There may not have been much sugar, but there was plenty of some more. We'd eat them pickled or dipped in dried ground chilies and salt. But it wasn't every day. If there were some, Lung Po would have the afternoon bell rung early, and we'd meet under the big mango tree at half past two before chores. Anyone who tossed the seeds away in a careless fashion would be in trouble. He'd say, you soiled your virtue. We weren't to throw the seeds away just anywhere. We had to put them all together in a neat pile and then afterwards one of us would dispose of them in the proper place. After we'd finished, Lung Po would say a few more words of Dhamma and then at three o'clock we'd go to work. Once the sweeping was over, we'd prepare water for drinking and general use. In the early days, we'd haul the water from the well and then carry it to the places it was needed in old kerosene cans. These cans would be carried, suspended from a bamboo pole with a monk at each end, taking the weight on a shoulder. Lung Po would be one of the ones pulling on the rope, and I would be the one who would lift out the bucket full of water and fill the tin cans. In those days there weren't many monks, six, eight, ten, the numbers steadily increased. Everybody would help with the water hauling, young and old, and it was done in silence. Lung Po would be observing us the whole time. The monks were careful, respectful. We had a deep faith in what we were doing. When water hauling was over, then we'd sweep the Dhamma hall, wipe down the floor and window frames, and lay down mats for the evening session. After that we'd take a bath, and then go out onto our walking paths to practice some walking meditation. As soon as the bell was rung at six o'clock, we'd pick up our robes and shoulder bag from the kuti, close our windows, bow, and set off for the evening session at a brisk pace. Lung Po was always reminding us to get to the Dhamma Hall promptly and not to keep the senior monks waiting. After the evening sitting, there would be a period of chanting and then Lung Po would get up onto the Dhamma seat. Most days he'd read a passage from the Bubasika and then expand on its meaning. It would usually be around 10 or 11 o'clock before we'd pay respects to the triple gem and return to our kutis. Sometimes it would be midnight or one in the morning. Lung Po was very frugal with the requisites. If he saw that someone had thrown something away in the forest, an old plastic dipper, say, or a spittoon, 
that was still usable or whatever, he'd retrieve it. He'd say, we were wasteful. You've soiled your virtue. That was one of his favorite phrases. You've soiled your virtue. When I first went to live at Wat Bapong, I couldn't understand how you could soil your virtue so quickly or easily. What he meant was that you'd said or done something inappropriate. You'd say something wrong, do something wrong, put things away poorly, lose your awareness, be in a daydream, and that would be soiling your virtue. He tried to have us use requisites frugally so that we wouldn't run out of things. Some people didn't understand. They said Lung Po was always complaining, that he nagged, that he was stingy, but it was really just that he had a standard that he was trying to maintain. Every observance day we'd keep the sitter's practice, monks and laity. Everybody would refrain from sleeping for the whole night. It was very difficult to leave the hall. You'd be sitting there in agony, but nobody would have the courage to be the first to go outside because it would mean showing yourself up in front of the others and you'd worry about that. But once one had gone out, others would follow. It wasn't that people wanted to lie down and rest. They wanted to stretch their legs and do some walking meditation. Some nights, though, if you couldn't bear it, you might actually lay down for a few minutes on the forest floor, but if you heard the sound of someone coming, or of leaves crackling, you'd jump up, afraid someone would see. Lung Po would say, Going outside is for changing your posture. Don't get into conversations. He himself just sat there motionless for the whole night. Sometimes Lung Po would have one of the lay people give a Dhamma talk. There were two laymen who could give talks, Podi and Po Moon. Those two could talk all day and all night if you gave them the chance. Lung Po would say, All right, now the monks and novices can hear a talk about lay life and how hard and full of troubles it is. Then one of the two would tell us all about the sufferings of life in the world. And actually, we learnt a lot. Absolute Sincerity In later years, Ajahn Tieng was sometimes teased for exaggerating the purity of the practice in the early days. Some monks said that he projected too much of the fierceness and lack of humour in his own personality onto Lung Po. Nevertheless, his account of that early period is a powerful one. The heart of what Lung Po was teaching, the two things he was emphasizing above all else, were the vinaya and meditation practice. The monastic regimen was not to be discarded or interrupted under any circumstances. If it wasn't absolutely necessary, then there were no breaks from group practice. If there was a break, it never lasted more than 15 days or so, or at most a month. He laid great emphasis on meditation practice. You were told to practice walking and sitting meditation, keep putting forth effort, morning, noon and night. If you had some task to perform, you were to see to it and then return to your meditation. The monks weren't interested in chatting or playing around. 
everyone kept to themselves and did their practice. The lay people who went to the monastery did the same. They listened to talks and learned about the Dhamma. They took meditation practice seriously and applied themselves to it at the appropriate times. Luang Po never spoke playfully. He never told jokes or acted in a high-spirited way. He never spoke of worldly things or led the monks into bad habits with talk of the sensual world. On the contrary, he would forbid such talk. He told the monks not to socialize. He said it led to cliques and disharmony. His sights were set firmly on practice. He was intent on the threefold training and the study of the Dhamma and Vinaya. In those days, he would give regular instruction based on the Pubhasikha. Every day after evening chanting, we'd listen to the Vinaya. All our ways of doing things were in accordance with the Vinaya, right down to the details of the annual robe offering ceremony, the Katina. We trained ourselves to cut and sew our own robes and to make toothwoods. We incorporated those things into our daily schedule and used them to overcome sloth, torpor and laziness. That was the way he taught. If you feel sleepy, then don't sleep. Find some skillful means to get through your drowsiness. In the middle of the day, if nothing else works, you can always make toothwoods. Sometimes we'd practice until 11 or 12 at night before he'd let us go back. That would give you two hours of rest. How could you go to sleep for two hours? You just ended up sitting propped up against a wall or tree somewhere near the Dhamma Hall. You'd never be in time to ring the bell. Lung Po would always be there first. We tried our best, but who could make do with as little sleep as him? You had to do what you were told. If it was a walking period, you had to walk, no question. If it was a sitting period, you had to sit, you weren't to get up. He wasn't joking, it wasn't in him. You had no alternative. If he saw you being stubborn, he would call you over and scold you. He scolded the monks, he scolded the novices. He'd even call a meeting to do it. You couldn't sit around relaxing anywhere, even for the blink of an eye. You couldn't drift in and out of the Dhamma Hall. He'd ask straight away, what did you go outside for? If you'd gone out to urinate and disappeared for an hour, then that would be it. An hour to urinate? Next time you go, let me know. I'd like to see that for myself. How could you fail to be afraid? You couldn't skip anything. He didn't joke and he didn't let anything go. If you didn't have a proper walking path, or the central area was left unswept, then that was it. You'd hear about it that very day. Why not? Are you unwell? If you're not feeling well, then why didn't you come and tell me? Or, if you couldn't do that, why didn't you tell somebody else? How can you just follow your own mind like that? You're a member of a community, aren't you? Or do you think you're living alone? He'd pull you up on everything. You couldn't move an inch. You couldn't wander about. Once the session was over, and you could carry on practicing on your own, even still, if he saw someone walking about, then that was it. Venerable sir, venerable sir, what are you playing around at now? He had really sharp eyes. He didn't let anything go, even very minor matters. 
If he told everyone to walk and you didn't, then it would be a big deal. If the session was over, you had to go straight back to your kuti. If he hadn't given permission, then you couldn't go anywhere. If there was anything the matter, then you had to mention it. So there were some great stories in those days. It wasn't so much that he forced anybody, but he had absolute sincerity. That's the way he ran the monastery in those days. But, to be frank, we weren't quite up to it. Coconut Ajahn Tiang summarized Lung Po's teachings. The first thing he told us to do was establish a stable mindfulness, to make it continuous, not to get lost or distracted or let it be cut off. He said his Dhamma had no top and no bottom. It wasn't short or long. He said that he had pressed it into a ball that was shaped like a coconut. He taught us to establish mindfulness, nurture our faith, incline our minds towards the triple gem of Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. He himself had genuine reverence, and he taught that reverence to us too. He taught us to be mindful while we were bowing. He said that if we let our minds wander, and our mindfulness was poor, then there would inevitably be some fault or other in what we did. He would say that when your mind is not calm, when it's in a hot, agitated, abnormal state, something will always go wrong. Mindfulness was his main emphasis, making mindfulness constant and smooth, without interruptions, not allowing it to be broken. Whether standing, walking, sitting, lying down or eating, you had to be mindful. Because if you lose your mindfulness, it's the same as losing your life. That's what he'd say. If there was a work project going on, for instance, and we complained that we didn't have the opportunity to practice, he would ask us if our breath stopped while we were eating or lying down. How could you be too exhausted to meditate when your breath is so immediate and ordinary? There's nothing more to it than the breath. If you practice and you're mindful, it's nothing more than being with this ordinary breath. That was all he taught. Mindfulness was the main part of it. If you lose your mindfulness, what kind of meditation technique are you going to use? What sort of concentration are you going to develop? What purification is going to take place? You won't know how to achieve any of those things. It's mindfulness that's important. Coolness and tranquility arise in the presence of mindfulness. Internal and external well-being come with mindfulness. Dhamma, Vinaya, Every one of the monastic regulations depends on mindfulness. Without mindfulness, what are you going to make your object of awareness? That's how he taught the fundamental principles. He'd say, don't get puffed up about being monks and novices. Don't look down on others. Don't be attached to your family background or nationality. That's not virtuous and it's not the Dhamma. Wash your hands of that kind of pride. Aim at abandoning all conceit and views. He told us not to make too much out of each other's faults, to keep considering how similar we all are, and not to dwell on thoughts of who's right and who's wrong.
Admonishments are normal. After you've done something wrong, then put it behind you. Don't hold on to feelings of right and wrong. As soon as there's holding on and attachment, it's not Dhamma and it's not Vinaya. If something is in line with the Vinaya, then it's in line with the Dhamma as well. By keeping the Vinaya, you're practicing Dhamma. Lung Po treated them as interconnected. He never separated Dhamma from Vinaya. He taught us to practice the different aspects of the path simultaneously. That's why he said, his teachings weren't short or long, but were pressed into a sphere, like a grapefruit or a coconut. No Reprieve Monks who arrived in the mid-1960s, as the size of the community steadily increased, might have found a slight relaxation of Lung Po's intensity, but by no means did they have an easy time of it. He still sought to create within his disciples the enthusiasm for the training and the patient endurance that was needed for them to succeed in it. His aim was still to foster within them a whole new attitude to their lives, an attitude in which everything matters. Nothing was to be done in a slipshod manner. Care, attention and respect had to be given to every action. Luang Po tirelessly admonished the monks when they were heedless. He drummed into them how essential it was to sustain mindfulness in every activity. With laxness or negligence in minor matters of procedure, bringing down such wrath upon their heads, few monks could even contemplate larger, more serious transgressions. In most cases, a sense of wise shame and fear of consequences, although artificially quickened, soon matured. As Ajana Naik remembered it, if anybody did something that deviated from his instructions, it would be an issue immediately. Suppose Luang Po heard the sound of buckets clanking at the well, outside of the time he'd laid down for hauling water, or of someone chopping jackfruit chips to make dye at the wrong time, that evening we would hear about it. He would get up on the dumber seat and lay down the law until late at night. On some occasions, he would keep going until three in the morning. By that time, it wasn't worth going back to our goodies. And after he'd got down from the seat, we would launch straight into morning chanting. So we would have to keep nudging and reminding each other if we saw anyone doing anything at the wrong time, because we were afraid of another dressing down. Even if there was only one miscreant, Luang Po wouldn't let anyone else go back to their goodies. Everyone had to sit there and listen to the admonishment. It was no different than if you yourself were being told off, and it was frustrating for those who wanted to meditate or had other business to see to. We monks were really afraid, afraid that we'd have to listen to a long talk. If Luang Po knew someone had done something wrong, then he would never leave it overnight. He'd either call over the individual monk at fault or speak to the whole Sangha. He was always very strict and vigorous. Anyone who had any kind of business, no matter how important or trivial, would have to go and ask his permission first before seeing to it. You couldn't just go ahead and do something on your own authority. If you did, 
you could be sure that that evening you'd be in for a long talk. If anyone missed chanting, or came five or ten minutes late, it was a serious matter. As you approached the Dhamma Hall, you had to walk as softly and silently as possible. Making a noise was completely unacceptable. If you did, you'd be admonished for disturbing the people already meditating in the hall. Lung Po said that making a noise close to people who were meditating was ill-mannered and bad dhamma. What's more, it indicated a lack of mindfulness, self-awareness and sense restraint. He said that for a practitioner of dhamma, it was disgraceful behaviour. Ajahn Ruangrit recalled, If you went out to urinate, you'd be admonished. You had to endure until the end of the session. He'd say, Other people can do it. Why can't you? You're a human being the same as they are. You've got all the same organs. What's so difficult? That's how we did things in those days. Your robe would become completely soaked with sweat, and you'd lose so much fluid that way that the ache to urinate would disappear. We were also afraid of Luang Po, really afraid when he started getting onto us like that. You eat a lot and sleep a lot. If you eat a lot, then you have to shit a lot, drink a lot and you have to piss a lot. I've heard those words so many times. But, as a result, in our eating, in our actions, we were always very moderate. In those days, there was a great care and precision in how we did things. Relaxation The atmosphere at Wat Pong was not, however, as grim and harsh as some of the preceding passages might suggest. Luang Po's exhortations were given in a semi-tropical forest in which, for months every year, stifling heat and humidity encouraged sloth and torpor. His audience was an easy-going group of young men, raised in a culture that did not instill the crippling sense of guilt or self-aversion that might have led them to take such browbeating unwisely. The heavy hand was, in short, a medicine whose benefits outweighed its side effects. After some time, monks became accustomed to the novelties of the monastic life. If their meditation practice was yet to bear much fruit, it was difficult for them to maintain their original enthusiasm. The constant urging and upbraiding from Lung Po sought to invigorate the regular cases of slumping zeal. His words were, in some ways, the equivalent of a Zen master stick. Not everyone could endure it, and some monks left. But, for the most part, they enjoyed the fiery talks in the same way that they relished fiercely spiced food. Common praise for a more abrasive talk was that it really got down to the chilies and ginger. But there were also times when the Sangha came, as close as bald-headed monks could come, to letting their hair down. Every now and again, Lung Po would invite everyone over to his kuti in the evening. Cigarettes would be passed around, and the monks would sit in the lamplight, outer robe removed, smoking and listening to Lung Po's anecdotes and stories. He would talk about the wisdom of enlightened monks, the hard-earned triumphs and comical failures of unenlightened disciples. 
Encounters with Wild Animals and Ghosts, Tales from the Time of the Buddha. Monks would laugh a lot. There would be questions and the sharing of experiences. These occasions were treasured by the monks. The warmth, companionship and emotional support they felt as they sat there answered needs not met in the formal gatherings of the community. On these occasions, Lumpur affected an apparently effortless switch from commander-in-chief to father figure. The ambiguity of the monk's feelings towards Lumpur became obvious on these occasions. At the same time as fearing him almost as mice do the cat, or in his own simile, as burglars do the policeman, they loved and trusted him completely and would savour every moment of their time in his presence. The monks sometimes felt that the points of Dhamma that they gleaned from these occasions went deeper into their hearts than the teachings they received during formal Dhamma talks. They would return to their kutis after these sessions, charged and refreshed, eager to meditate. Water Rites Not everyone was happy that there were monks in Pong Forest. There were local prejudices and misunderstandings to overcome. One of the first points of contention with the villagers was the sensitive issue of water use. We dug a really good well in the forest. We put up a sign in front of it saying, for monks only, not to be used by laypeople, and filled a separate earthenware jar with water for anybody coming through the forest. We got criticised for that. Ponupi was the worst, as soon as he heard the village women saying that the monks wouldn't let lay people drink the water. That was it. He was hopping mad. What? Who do those monks think they are? Why won't they let lay people drink their water? They go to all the trouble of becoming monks and learning about the Buddha's teachings, and they end up so selfish they won't even share their water you'd think they weren't dependent on the lay people for their food every day. There, all because of a misunderstanding, in my own village as well. In fact, they were welcome to drink the water. It was just that when the villagers haul water themselves, they use buckets that they've been storing frogs and fish or tadpoles or whatnot in, which make the water dirty. I didn't want them to do that. So, when we hauled water every day, we put some in a jar specially for lay people. But people didn't tell the whole story. They just said that we wouldn't let them use our water. So, when poor Nupi heard just that, he was so angry that he stormed out of the village. He said he was going to drive the monks out of the forest. What sort of monks are these? Who do they think they are? Have they forgotten that we are the ones that feed them? He'd only heard half the story. It took a long time to explain to him, but then when he understood, he became a disciple, and later on, the monastery's head layman. Villagers, some of whom had formerly cut timber illegally, hunted and raised cattle, etc. on the edge of the forest, were now unable to do so. They were angry at the disruption of their livelihood. Some of the disgruntled villagers came up with a plan to discredit the monks. Unwittingly repeating a ploy going back to the time of the Buddha himself, 
it involved compromising one of the monks with a woman. The monk who went on alms round to that village was informed by a well-wisher of what was being considered. Worried, he informed Long Po. Long Po said that he would go on alms round to the village himself. Inevitably, monastery lay supporters objected. Ajahn, don't go on your own. They say that they're going to get a young woman to hug you and then shout out that you tried to rape her. Long Po, unfazed, joked with them. Bring her on. I've never been hugged by a young woman in my life. Let her try. It should be great. In the end, the villagers lost their nerve. Who knew what comic retribution they would be calling down upon themselves, they worried. Better safe than sorry. And from that point onwards, relations between the Wat and the villagers slowly but steadily improved. To Catch a Thief Another problem arose when it became known that the nuns had planted fruit trees. At the beginning, people would come in to ask for a few of the papayas, guavas, lemons or bananas. After a while, they came to steal. One of the nuns resident at the time remembers the skillful way Long Po solved the problem. The thieves would usually sneak in at about eight or nine at night, while the monks were attending the evening session. One day Long Po told some postulants to cut down some of the largest calm thorn bushes and conceal them by the side of the path used by the thieves. That night, he had monks wait at three points along the path. He himself was at the first point, close to where the thieves would steal the papayas. The second point lay halfway along the path, and the third was near to the thorn trap. At the expected time, the thieves came into view, carrying bags and baskets. While they were engrossed in picking the papayas, Lung Po gave a signal and the thorn bushes were placed lengthwise along the path. The bushes were big. Every branch was covered with sharp thorns, and they covered the path completely. When Lung Po estimated that the thieves had almost filled their baskets, he coughed softly. The cough wasn't loud enough to make them panic and throw away their booty immediately, but it was enough for them to decide they needed to leave quickly. The thieves lifted the baskets to their shoulders and hurried off, half walking, half running. When they reached the second point, Long Po shouted out from behind them, Did you see anyone go that way? Where are they? Where are they? The monks hiding at the second point shouted back. Hearing these voices, the thieves got really scared and started to run like crazy. When they reached the third point, the monks hiding there made a commotion. Meanwhile behind them, the monks from the first two points were chasing them down the path. The sound of shouts and whoops filled the forest. Now the thieves really panicked. They threw down the baskets and lengths of cloth wrapping the papayas and sprinted away, straight into the thorn bushes. The first thief suddenly felt the pain and pulled up sharply. The second one cannoned into him 
and the two of them crawled around trying desperately to free themselves from the thorn bushes. Their groans of pain were deafening. Anyway, they were so afraid that finally they managed to get free and ran off back to their village. Long Po had the postulants gather up the evidence, the baskets and the comar cloths. He knew the identity of the thieves would be no secret, because they'd be laid up in bed for two or three days before their children would be able to pull out all the thorns. After that time had passed, he sent for the village headman. Long Po said, Tell them to come and collect their baskets and cloths. They dropped them in the forest. Tell them they don't have to be afraid. Tell them to come and get them from me. They've left them here a long time already. If they don't hurry, the papayas will have dried up and they won't be able to sell them. One of the thieves came. Lung Po spoke to him kindly, without scolding, and taught him to carry on an honest livelihood and to give up thieving. The papayas weren't worth the bad gumma. After that, the theft ceased. Cats and Dogs Abandoned dogs were another issue. It has long been a custom in Thailand to release unwanted dogs in village monasteries, where the monks feed them from leftover arms food. But when people started to do this in Wat Bapong, Long Po had to explain why he could not agree to it. We don't like cats and dogs here. We already have a lot of creatures, squirrels and shrews and jungle fowl in particular, and we're trying to conserve them for future generations. The dogs you let go in the forest kill these animals. Please don't do it again. Whoever brought these dogs here, then take them away with you. If you don't want to take them, then I can get one of the monastery lay supporters to see to it. But don't bring dogs into the forest again. The squirrels, the shrews, the forest chickens, they belong to all of you as much as to me. When your children and grandchildren have grown up, they will be able to come and see these different kinds of creatures in the monastery. There's not many left of the ones living outside the monastery. We've all got to help look after these creatures in the forest. Taking Root Initially, relations between Wat Bapong and the monks in the surrounding villages and the city of Ubon were strained. The tensions were familiar ones. Since the appearance of the Lungbu Man lineage some forty years before, friction between the forest monks and local sanghas had occurred frequently. Urban scholars and administrators tended to look on forest monks with disdain. Their custom of giving Dhamma talks in the Isan language rather than Central Thai, and of employing a plain, unvarnished style rather than delivering text-based sermons in elevated language read from palm leaves, was considered disrespectful to the Dhamma. With some reason, scholars worried that the impromptu style of teaching, unsupported by frequent reference to Pali texts, easily led to uneducated opinion being passed off as the Buddha's teaching. The forest monk's lifestyle of keeping to the ascetic practices, such as eating once a day from their bowls, was seen as excessive, out of date and uncouth. The forest monks threatened the prestige of the urban monks. 
Although the forest tradition was largely unknown in Ubon, anyone who had read or heard stories from the scriptures could see that their way of life was much closer to the ancient ideal than was that of the urban monks. The local village monks often felt intimidated by the presence of monks strict in Vinaya. Formerly there had been no standard to measure them by. Their laxness was just the way things were, and people were used to it. But now things had changed. Lay people who had been to Watbapong came back inspired and compared it favorably with their local monastery. Lung Po did not just accept their offerings and chant a few blessings in Pali, they said. He taught them the value of precepts and how to meditate. Jealousy of Lung Po sometimes found expression in scorn and abuse. Lung Po's reply was to quietly carry on with his practice and the training of monks, and to behave so impeccably as to deprive the snipers of their ammunition. From very early on, the monastery established by Lung Po in Pong Forest was known as Wat Ba Pong, but it was not in the technical or legal sense of the word a Wat at all. Wat is a designation conferred on a monastic residence by the crown on the advice of the ruling body of the national Sangha. It denotes a formal recognition of the monastery's legitimacy and orthodoxy from the powers that be. Application for this status is a natural and expected progression for monastic communities that are firmly established, have all essential buildings erected, and have a steady lay support. Watbapong would not become a Wat in the eyes of the law until 1970. In the early years of its existence, its insecure legal status made it worrisomely vulnerable to hostile forces. Luang Po was keenly aware that the long-term security of Wat Bapong was dependent on establishing a good relationship with the Sangha elders in the city, or at least one based upon mutual acceptance. While it was true that there was no danger that powerful figures would seek to interfere in the way he ran Wat Bapong on a day-to-day basis, Luang Po and his monks were answerable by law to the administrative jurisdiction of senior monks appointed on the rural, district and provincial levels. If Wat Bapong became the subject of these monks' enmity or suspicion, it would be difficult for the monastery to survive. Monks branded as vagabonds and renegades had been known to be evicted from their hermitages or even forcibly disrobed. Accusations that forest monks were communists was becoming an increasingly effective slur. Luang Po's solution was quiet diplomacy. To the monks in village monasteries surrounding him, he was unfailingly polite and often made donations to them of excess requisites or tools. Gradually, Wat Bapong became a recognized member of the local scene by asking the head monk of the local district to be his disciple's preceptor, Luang Po gave this powerful figure a personal interest in the welfare of the Wat Bapong Sangha. He arranged textbooks for monks who wished to take the Naktam Dhamma exams, and the impressive exam results of the Wat Bapong monks earned them a grudging respect amongst the urban scholars. 
Luang Po made a particular point of showing deference to the senior monks in the local town of Warin and the city of Ubon. He tried to let them see for themselves that he and his disciples were not revolutionaries bent on overthrowing a corrupt establishment. They were simple forest monks, seeking a quiet place to practice. Once a year, at the start of the rains retreat, he would take his sangha to pay respects to their superiors, even if, as often occurred in the early years, he was spoken to sarcastically or patronized. Luang Po would maintain a bowed head humility that disarmed his would-be antagonists. As the years went by, Luang Po's seniority and fame steadily increased. Burgeoning lay support, both local and national, provided a buffer against his detractors, and the Wat became secure. At the same time, a number of locally prominent scholar monks, such as Ajahn Mahamon, became disciples giving the Wat Bapong Sangha a certain intellectual legitimacy in the eyes of the Pali scholars. Suspicion and distrust of Luang Po lessened considerably. Jealousies went underground. More and more monks asked to come to train at Wat Bapong. Adverse reactions from village and urban monks were not a wholly bad thing. The perception that the Wat Bapong monks held of themselves as a beleaguered minority, the only strict and dedicated monks in a sea of corruption and decline, intensified their commitment and sense of community. It seemed reasonable to assume that the harmony and unity that became such a distinctive feature of Wat Bapong was in part built upon this early perception of the Wat as a solitary island of authentic practice. It was true that, from time to time, the arrogance that usually accompanies feelings of being special could be seen to surface amongst members of the Wat Bapong Sangha. But with Luang Po constantly urging them to confront defilements head-on, most monks were too painfully aware of their own failings to sustain serious feelings of superiority. Ten years after Luang Po's return to Ubon, he could be happy with the results of his efforts at Wat Bapong. The growing number of monks, novices and nuns, was an indication of a monastery in rude good health. Luang Po was learning more and more about how to teach and train his disciples. Almost a hundred years after the birth of its founder, Luang Pu Man, in an outlying village, the forest monastic lineage was finally taking root in Ubon.